The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We are again in this Advent season, and as we move forward in looking at this grand theme of awaiting, awaiting the coming of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. This week, we'll be looking at awaiting the light. And as we heard in this passage from Isaiah, we know that Jesus' coming is not just something that takes place in the Old Testament. I mean, I'm sorry, in the New Testament. It's something that began in the Old. I want to begin with a story. It's from a book I have mentioned before, Boys in the Boat. The protagonist, Joe Rance, was a young teenager, and his father, Harry, had remarried a woman who wanted nothing to do with their son, Joe. So they lived in a backwoods area, and they were really just scraping by. They were incredibly impoverished. Joe was the son of the first marriage, whose mother had tragically died suddenly. And after a number of difficulties for this family, the stepmother gave Harry an ultimatum. Either move to a new area without Joe, who is now at this point a teenage son, or she would leave Harry. Sadly, Harry chose to leave his son and go off with the second wife. So without telling Joe while he was away at school, Harry packed up their two younger boys whom they had had together and prepared to drive to Seattle. When Joe came home from school and saw the packed car, Joe, of course, assumed that they were going on a family trip together until Joe's father, Harry, spoke to his son, telling him that he couldn't join them. The story continues with Joe sadly appealing to his father. Can I just come along? No, that won't work. Look, son, if there's one thing I figured out about life, it's that if you want to be happy, you have to learn how to be happy on your own. And the author writes, with that, Harry strode back to the car, climbed in, closed the door, and started down the driveway. In the back seat, Mike and Harry Jr. peered through the oval rear window, and Joe watched the red taillights recede and disappear into a dark shroud of rain. He turned and walked into the house and closed the door behind him. The whole thing had taken less than five minutes. The rain was thundering on the roof now. The house was cold and damp. The light bulbs hanging from the rafters flickered on for a moment. Then they flickered off and stayed off. 
You see, darkness can be the light that is flickering on and then off. Physical darkness. But the darkness can also be a young boy abandoned and alone. Darkness can also be the heart of a father who, within his own distorted logic and framework, thinks that leaving his only his young son behind in a house just to appease his wife, that that's actually in some way a logical and good decision, no matter how noble the decision he thinks that is. Darkness comes in all forms in many different ways. It's why Isaiah tells this story in Isaiah 9. It's a story about darkness. But thankfully, it doesn't end in darkness. It ends with a light that brightens the darkness. It uncovers the darkness. And so I'd like to look at just how does this light impact this darkness? So first we'll look at verse 2 and we'll consider the darkness itself. Second, we'll look at the light in verses 2 to 5. And then third, we'll look at the child who is the light, according to verse 6. So first, let's look at this darkness in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Look at those verbs that describe what this darkness is doing. This darkness has a people walking and dwelling in darkness, meaning that they've been doing this for quite a while, living in this darkness. And the question is, what is this darkness that Isaiah is referring to? We know, first of all, that it's a spiritual darkness. And to understand what this spiritual darkness looks like, I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, because he describes it so well there. Isaiah says, "For and, and God says through Isaiah, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. We might think, I'm glad I'm not like that. <laughs> but if we look deep in our hearts, we would see perhaps a mirror through God's word. The very challenges and sins, really, that Israel themselves committed, so to us. They were turning to fortune tellers, and we might say, well, we don't turn to fortune tellers. But it's not the fortune tellers. We have to always look behind and see what God is saying. God is not saying just simply going to a fortune teller is what is the cause of why their hearts are so sinful. It's why did they go to the fortune teller? You go to a fortune teller to get your future told. Why? Because there's anxiety about the future. And you want control 
over your future. You want to know in advance so you can prepare and make a plan and a strategy. So when the Israelites go to fortune tellers, it's to say, I don't trust God with my life. I want my future told for me because I'm so worried about it. I'm so anxious about it. And they believe that if they could only know the future, they would no longer worry. You see how there's two paths? One is, if I only know the future, I will not worry. If I only know what's coming, I can plan and, and figure out a way for myself how to get out of this situation. The other path is to say, God knows the future. I can trust him. I don't need to worry. I can believe that God has a plan for me and there's no way he's ever going to let me go. Going to a fortune, fortune teller just simply is another way of saying, I want control over my life. Does that sound familiar to you? Is that just an Israelite problem? Or if we're really honest with ourselves, do you perhaps see that your worries, your fears, it's just another way of saying, I want control over my life. And when I don't have it, I get afraid. There's another problem that the Israelites had, another sin. Verse 7 says, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. They had everything they needed. They were still not satisfied with what they had. You know, this past week, after I found that I had uh, possibly been exposed to someone with COVID, as I'm quarantining, I went online and I found a way to have my groceries delivered to me through Instacart. And I actually had never used Instacart before, but I figured can't really go outside. I should try to figure out a way to get groceries to our family. And so I went on to Instacart and I went to notice that there's this section where you can order from Costco. And I just thought, and we had a 14 day free trial. So going and order from Costco and seeing, I, you know, all of us have sort of battled the lines at Costco and going around, especially during this Christmas season, fighting for parking spaces and all that. And just to do that from the convenience of my own home, it just seems so easy. I mean, the first thought that came to my mind is how many people who are in Africa, places where there's such need, for us, the inconvenience of a quarantine and just simply being able to click on different things to order food, groceries delivered to my door, we have everything we need. The land is filled with silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Here's the problem that they had everything and yet they were still not satisfied still looking to other gods, to worshiping other gods for fertility. Fertility just means prosperity or gaining more, more treasures, striving harder and not being satisfied. So we become envious of what other people have. We read blogs and social media and we look and see what others have. And we say, I need that to be happy. What we are really saying is, God, what you've provided is not enough for me. That's another sin that Israel had. If we're honest with ourselves, don't we have that same sin as well? Are we ever truly satisfied with what we have? Is there envy in our hearts? Lastly, Isaiah says, their land is filled with idols, according to verse 8. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. 
to the work of their hands. And that is ultimately what idolatry is, the control of their own lives apart from God. I did this. It's my work. It's my power, my strength. My hands have made everything. And God, don't ever take anything away from me because if you, don't, if you do that, you're not fair. You're not good. That's Israel's heart. Paul describes this heart similarly in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give things to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You can see this same heart in Isaiah 9. It's a darkened heart. The problem with darkness is that we can't ever get less darkness by trying hard to overcome the darkness. If you're living in darkness, imagine literally you're in darkness. And no matter how much you work hard to get out of the darkness, if it's dark all around, there's no escape from the darkness. And your labors, your hard work, actually doesn't get you out of there. There's nothing you and I can do to escape darkness. There's only one hope. We need someone outside of us to rescue us from this darkness. We need an external light to come in because there's no light within. It's going to have to happen outside of us. So listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 8, 21 through 22. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged, will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. The people were in such spiritual darkness. And they were now suffering deeply because of that darkness. And in the midst of that, what did they experience? Repentance? No. Isaiah says, God says that they were angry. They hated God. They hated others. And the more angry they got, it didn't relieve them of their darkness. No, it just got darker. In fact, it says it, they were thrust into thick darkness. You know, this is such a time of, of fear and anxiety for all of us. And the more we are frustrated or anxious, I don't know if you notice, but it, it just slowly seeps into anger and irritability. And that anger, it doesn't relieve us. It actually builds more anger. We become less gracious, less compassionate, less empathetic. And by doing so, we see that the, for the Israelites, it just became darker, thick darkness. I really want to urge you all to consider this, that in this season where so much of our world is angry, anxious, and because of the pandemic, it's so easy to point fingers, to, to judge others, to be so compelled to be frustrated by the world. It doesn't matter what you believe, whether it's about politics, whether it's about somewhat com compliance towards the pandemic or not. 
It could be on both ends of the spectrum. I've seen both sides in almost every area and everyone pointing fingers and being upset all the time. We are being thrust into thick darkness. Left unchecked, it will corrode our souls and turn us away from the living God. There's a deep sense of idolatry in all of this. What is our hope? Our hope is the light in verses two to five. We need an external source of light to come in and break through the darkness. And that's exactly what this passage tells us. The people have seen a great light. When all seemed lost, despair was setting in. God broke through. You have to understand when Isaiah was writing this, the light had not broken through. So historically, when Isaiah is literally writing this, the darkness is absolutely fully taken hold. People were still walking in the darkness. It was thick darkness. But what happened here is that God showed Isaiah a vision of the future, something so spectacular what the future would be like. In other words, there would come a day when this thick darkness would be broken. The physical darkness, the spiritual darkness, the emotional darkness would be dispelled forever. And so for Isaiah, he got to see a vision of just how bright this light would be. And what would happen because of this light? We see in verses four to five. First, there would be freedom. This light would bring about a freedom from the heavy burden that comes from the darkness of sin. Sin and the conditions of sin and the consequences of sin, they enslave people. Verses four to five to say, tell us, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The darkness instills hopelessness and despair. It's truly a darkness that covers our souls. And I know many of us have experienced this in our lives past, maybe right now, where nothing anyone says breaks through. You see, it's not going to be mere words that gets us out of the darkness. It's not going to be trying to distract ourselves. We need something far greater because there is a, a really a, a beast of burden. It is oppressive. It's enslaving, actually. That's how um, Isaiah describes it. It puts a yoke upon our neck. So if you think of a, an oxen in the days of Isaiah, where they put an oxen around, an, uh, a yoke around an oxen to sort of force this beast of burden to till the soils. And so just like the heaviness of that yoke, it becomes inescapable. It's, it's impossible to break free. But Isaiah tells us in verses four and five, like Gideon, who against tremendous odds defeats the Midianites and throws off the yoke of the Midianites, the enslavement of the Midianites over Israel, we are told that there will be one who will come who will break us free from the yoke of sin and darkness that is upon us. When we feel the darkness of despair, fear, worry, anger, self-pity, lust, anxiety, all clouding in and controlling us and enslaving us, it just feels as though there's no hope to overcome it. 
Sometimes it seems as though darkness has won. We, we sort of resign ourselves to that fate. But then the light breaks through. A deliverer comes. He's come to defeat darkness and the enemy. He's come to set you and me free. And I love the way Jesus describes that freedom in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. You know this passage. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, this is so important. You have to understand what Jesus is saying here is that, remember, the yoke of our darkness, of our sin, is very heavy. It's so burdensome. Again, think of all the sins that we bear and the consequences of them. Lying, envy, anger, worry, fear, all of these consequences. and It's just so heavy. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. You know why his yoke is easy? Because Jesus is sinless. So when Jesus is walking this earth, he has no sin at all, so there's no burden. It is so light, so free. His yoke is paper thin. There's no weight to it. And so what Jesus says is that he's going to give you and me his yoke. When you trust in him, he takes his yoke and puts it on you so that you're free. It's so light. But do not think that comes without a cost. Because your yoke has to go somewhere. It just doesn't just disappear in the ether. Jesus takes your heavy burden yoke and puts it on himself. And when he's carrying that yoke, up on the hills of Golgotha. And when he's raised, when the cross is raised, why is the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, so burdensome, so heavy? Because your yoke, your burdens, Jesus has placed that on his shoulders. I mean, we never look at Matthew 11 and think, wow, that's such a nice, comfortable, comforting message. No, that's a very sorrowful message. It's a very joyous one for us. But oh, how deeply sorrowful it is for our Savior. Jesus was burdened. He took on our heavy yoke so we could have his light yoke. May we never think that our freedom is free. Our freedom had a priceless cost. Secondly, when this light comes, there is peace. We spoke much about peace before. But this light brings about eternal peace, according to verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There is peace. There is world peace. There can be no more need for weapons, armed forces, police, military, everyone wants world peace. But 
the more the world tries to get peace from its own strategies and plans, it never gets peace. We need outside help to get peace. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. And Isaiah then tells us how this peace is going to come about. But it's really startling, according to verse 6. Because look at what verse 6 tells us. That this peace is only possible through a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child. Why does Isaiah describe this rescuer first as a child that is born? I would imagine it's for us to dwell on this reality that God wants us to really soak it in. Is there any being more defenseless than a newborn child, an infant who has no inherent power? And unlike Isaiah predicting a military ruler or a superhero king bursting onto the scene, God wants us to dwell on the idea that there would be no one who would take credit for this rescue other than God himself. But we also need to remember that God had told Adam and Eve and Satan that a newborn child, the seed of the woman, would crush Satan's head and destroy him forever. So in this, child is a deliverer who is part of God's plan to save from the very beginning. Lest we think this is just a bunch of chance happenings coming together, it is not. This child is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This child is going to rescue you and me. And it's what this season is all about. This beautiful reminder that we never need to be afraid. We can trust Him. He is faithful to us. Isaiah tells us the life of this child would live and then suffer would suffer so hard. He would endure so much so that the light could remove the darkness. Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. To crush sin and death and Satan's head, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, to bring us eternal peace as the Prince of Peace. He would bear chastisement and he would be the one who would suffer. To heal our wounds because of our self-centeredness, he himself would be wounded. And when we believe him, we receive the eternal priceless gift of salvation. But you have to realize that you actually need a savior to receive this Christmas gift. Tim Keller writes insightfully, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life. 
Oh, we know that. I hope you know that this season. We all know that more than ever before, we can't do this on our own. It just, the darkness overcomes us. But may you also know that no matter how dark it gets, and it can get really dark, even darker than it is now, we know the light has overcome the darkness. Why? Because the light has come. Christ the Savior is born. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your kindness to us, that you would give your only beloved Son, that though the world did not accept him, he still came to save us. The light of the world, that's who our Savior is. And there is no darkness that can even come close to covering that light. Lord, we are living in darkness in so many different ways. Help us first to recognize, though, Lord, that we need rescue. We need a Savior. We need someone to save us from our own sinfulness. And that someone is Jesus, who we know was promised in Genesis 3 and here in Isaiah 9 is the light of the world. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.